This question comes from Svi Morgenstern. He says, you talk about the necessity of religion. It seems to me that the religious revivals of the postmodern era have mostly been fundamentalist, right-wing, and repressive in nature. Islamism, the evangelical religious right, ultra-Orthodox Judaism, all of these factions have grown more and more prominent relative to their liberal co-religionists in response to the decadence and nihilism of contemporary life. Do you see the potential for a religious revival which is genuinely liberatory? Wow, that's a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, <coughs> problem of religion is uh, important for contemporary political life, of course, and social life, but it's also important for our understanding of human history and the development of human life in a more general sense. <coughs> now, I uh, don't see what you are, are seeing in the contemporary world. Um, uh, yes, there are, um, say, in the postmodern era, whatever, whatever time you want to give that, let's say 1950 to 2000 or something like that, mostly, and you say that religious revivals have mostly been fundamentalist, uh, right-wing and repressive in nature, Islamism and the uh, religious right. Well, actually, um, I think that there are at least as many left-wing cults uh, that are the mirror image of these things. And uh, if you don't see them, let me see if I can sketch them out for you. All of left-wing politics is indebted to Christianity because that's the source, at least in the West, of the idea of... Uh, equality. And yes, there are elements in the Old Testament which do that, but um, you know, particularly when we get to Isaiah, for example, in which uh, the covenant with God becomes universal and everybody's one of his children. Um, there's a sense in which, though, you need monotheism in order to have uh, a standard God compared to which all human differences shrink to insignificance. That's a really handy thing to have, because uh, if you try and derive uh, human equality from some rational process, I believe you're going to fail. Now, you can take that two ways. You can decide that human beings are intrinsically unequal, and that's going to lead you in the Nietzschean, right-wing, uh, radical way. On the other hand, if you decide that human equality is not only... Uh, important, but it's an insight and a breakthrough that maybe is beyond or outside of the, of the rational Greek tradition. Here's my point. I think that there's something in the, in the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan about giving uh, moral concern even to people you don't know and, uh, and without some question about their qualifications. I don't see how you're going to get that from the Greco-Roman tradition. I don't see how you're going to get it from the Enlightenment. Uh, that's why I think that religion is here to stay, or God help us if it isn't. Um, you might be able to get self-interest out of rationality. I don't see how you're going to get universal benevolence out of rationality. And uh, I have a very high estimation of reason, and I spent much of my life trying to reason, but I'm not, I don't believe it's the highest achievement. I think that compassion or benevolence, the kind of thing we get taught by Jesus and the Buddha, um, 
are the uh, at least as important in living a life that's worth living. So, uh, yeah, you're right about the decadence and nihilism of contemporary life. Uh, the dilapidation of our communicative life and, our, and the moral life that it implies uh, is very worrisome. Uh, let me give you another example, though, of left-wing cult. I think that Gnostic Christianity uh, is deeply embedded in the Western uh, revolutionary tradition. Uh, my view is that Vogelin was right. Gnosticism has been a permanent element in Christianity ever since the time of the earliest, and perhaps, and in fact, earlier than the emergence of Christianity itself. Uh, Gnosticism is a kind of wild card that can attach itself to any system of belief. But Gnosticism holds that there's a small number of people with special knowledge, and that that liberates them from the need to obey conventional moral laws. And uh, this idea, in its religious dimension, easily leads to, uh, well, either radical asceticism or the opposite, radical hedonism. Since whatever you do, it doesn't make any difference. Now, this idea of a special small group of special people with special divine insight, um, that's what was behind Puritanism. The Puritans, who were highly educated, clustered around Cambridge, um, were convinced that they understood what God wanted from Christians, and it was that what God wanted from Christians was deeply different from the Anglican Church that had emerged uh, in a kind of slapdash theological fashion from uh, Henry VIII's uh, marital problems, rather than from a, a, a conclave of uh, theologians. So uh, the Puritans were a small group of people who had special knowledge, and that made them think that they should be in charge of society. And uh, they were for a while, as a, result, as, as a result of winning the English Revolution of 1640 to 1660. And they, they were in charge again in the early part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony when they settled that and began Puritan New England in America. So uh, the Puritans are the first step in this uh, Gnostic political tendency. The second step, the, the inheritors of the Puritan tradition are the Jacobins. The Jacobins are, are behind the French Revolution. They're the most radical element in the French Revolution. They were a small number of people that had especially wonderful knowledge about where history was going and about how to be rational and great stuff like that. And uh, they were so knowledgeable and so so unimpeachable in their moral judgments that that gave them a good reason to uh, murder their opponents. And they helped the French Revolution feed upon itself until, of course, the leading Jacobins, like Danton and Robespierre, uh, got consumed by, by the fire that they had stoked. And they end up getting their heads cut off, too. But uh, the... Uh, radical rejection of moral rules, the willingness to do anything, uh, as in the case of the, uh, the uh, atrocities that were committed across France in the name of securing the revolution, 
Um, this becomes the hallmark. This cruelty is justified by our special excellence. It's the hallmark of these uh, Gnostic cults. So it's true of the Puritans in the English Revolution. Think of, uh, say, Cromwell's destruction of the whole Irish population at, or the whole army at Drogheda. You know, no quarter. You kill everything that's there. Uh, think of the Jacobins during the reign of terror, which they created and uh, which they inflamed. From the Puritans, the next great example of a Gnostic religious cult is uh, Bolshevism. In other words, in the late 19th century, Marxism morphed into, a, or, or the writings of Karl Marx were used to create a Gnostic religious cult. The Bolsheviks had also had, were a small group of people who had special knowledge of the world, and this justified their revolutionary ability to, or uh, capacity to legitimately kill everyone who opposes them. And, of course, after they do that, or as, insofar as they can, um, they kill people who even don't oppose them, who used to be part of the uh, Bolshevik movement. If you've ever read Darkness at Noon by Kessler, uh, that's what this is about. It's about the nihilism built right into Bolshevism. And uh, how, the fa how, in fact, it is a sort of, I mean, he doesn't mention it, but it is a sort of Gnostic cult in the Jacobin tradition. The next jump from there, from the Bolsheviks as a Gnostic cult, is, uh, I'd be inclined to say, to uh, Pol Pot and the Camer Rouge. Uh, there, the Gnosticism was evident. I mean, they decided, like the, the, like the uh, French Jacobins, to start the, ca the calendar again at year one. And then, with a good conscience, they marched out a third of their country out of the cities into the forest and exterminated them in the first two years of their rule. So uh, they were justified in doing this, they believed, because everyone else had been corrupted by Western decadence and capitalism, and the only way to purify their society was a bloodletting, which, while extreme, uh, was justified by the infinite excellence of the regime that was about to come, which is essentially the idea of heaven. All thinkers and all political actors that are pursuing utopia are, in fact, theologians pursuing not utopia but heaven. And the problem is, when you realize that this is theology, um, it also will dawn on you that utopia and heaven are not going to be found in this world, and we all have to have a look at plan B. So uh, you ask me at the end of your question, do I see the potential for a religious revival which is genuinely liberatory? Let me ask about the presuppositions of your question. Am I enslaved or are you enslaved that we need something that is liberatory and what is it exactly that's enslaving us? It certainly sounds to me like you're looking for sin as the thing to which we're enslaved. And uh, although it's strangely theological, um, oppression is just the modern uh, tarted up version of the old idea of Puritan sin. And when you say it's genuinely liberatory, 
do you mean that there's only going to be a small number of people who see how things really are and they can help move everybody else, the benighted mass, which doesn't know what's happening, um, toward where they, the, uh, their ultimate goal? It sounds like Leninism, but that's been tried and it's been failed. And it's failed, if you see what I'm saying. So I think religion is here to stay because religion is a kind of language. And while it is uh, excellent if you know more than one language, it helps the way you think, uh, it is very important that you know at least one language. And if you don't know a, la- uh, a religious language, then there are certain domains that you're just not able to talk about, like the things that are of ultimate significance to us. And the fact that we have an obligation towards, well, what, say, Richard Rorty would call solidarity, but what uh, a regular old Christian would say was agape, benevolence, goodwill, and love towards other people, even if you don't know them, and even if um, it costs you something. You can't get that out of reasoning, but then again, reasoning isn't everything. And this one is from the same thread as the one that we first did, and it is from the archive. He says, Religion, especially in the modern day, will always amount to regression because people already know too much for their own good. Once an idea is assimilated by the mind, the mind cannot get rid of it unless it is deliberately clouded by abusive stimulants. So there will be an uptick in global religiosity, but not for anyone's liberation, but for the rulers, because religion divides. Wow. Um, That's a very interesting question. And uh, taking it apart and having a look at it, you know, so we can figure out which way to, to go and answering it is, uh, is challenging. I mean, I like it when people ask good questions and I sort of baffled myself. Um, the idea that religion will always amount to regression, no, that doesn't seem clear to me. Or perhaps I'm not sure um, what we mean in this case by regression. Uh, you know, uh, and then uh, you say people know too much for their own good. Well, I mean, I know at least one person that doesn't know too much for their own good, and that would be me. So I think maybe it's an overgeneralization. Once an idea is assimilated by the mind, the mind cannot get rid of it. Well, no. Actually, um, I've assimilated all kinds of stupid stuff in my time, and I gave it a place in my mind. In some cases, a an excellent central place and eventually decided that I had to get rid of it and out it went. So, uh, although deliberately clouding the mind with abusive stimulants um, is entertaining, um, that's not why I get rid of ideas that I had. I get rid of ideas because I think they're wrong because I have grounds for saying, well, I have new evidence and this has got to go. So the idea that you can't get rid of an idea is just wrong. Uh, it happens all the time. Now, I think what you're trying to say is that religious images, uh, once they're taken in in childhood, influence the mind thereafter. Like the Jesuit priests used to say, if you give us the boy, we'll vouch for the man. Well, um, that's true, but uh, first of all, it's as... It, probably more advantageous than disadvantageous. And uh, the way in which uh, religious, how can I put it, 
iconography and symbolism gets deployed in any individual mind uh, reflects much more on the mind that is doing it than on the conditions under which it was uh, educated in that symbol system. Look at what I'm trying to say. A religion is a kind of a language that people use to talk about really important stuff. Um, it's what allows you, assuming that you're an intellectual and you think deep thoughts a lot, it's what allows you to talk in a friendly and equal way with the guy who cuts your lawn or the guy who takes away your trash about the things that are really important, like whether the child survived COVID. Uh, if somebody says, uh, God bless you, or I play, prayed for you, um, I'm not, he's not making some, some uh, statement about the metaphysical structure of the universe. No doubt that's implicit in it, but mostly what they're trying to convey to you is the idea that um, you have their uh, attention and their sympathy and they would like to help you out. It, uh, religion is a, it's a, a language which allows us to say stuff like that. Try saying that in uh, an impoverished uh, language organized around the periodic table of elements. <laughs> and look, I love the periodic table of elements. Don't get me wrong, science is great. I hate people, or I, I, I have very little intellectual respect for people that don't appreciate science. But my point is, uh, I wanted to be a servant rather than a master. And uh, when you say that religion divides, I'm gonna straight up contradict you. Um, I've actually looked at this in a world historical sense, and uh, it can't be that religious communities and religious doctrines emerge in all the great world civilizations. Uh, what that means is that religion must be functional. It's not purely decorative like the fins on an old Cadillac. Instead, it's something that you absolutely need because the fact that we see it emerge, you know, Confucianism and Taoism and uh, uh, eventually they hold on to Buddhism in China, uh, the Vedic and Hindu tradition in, uh, and there are a couple of others too in India, um, the various monotheisms, um, what these did was pull people together. The Zoroastrian monotheism of the Persian Empire allowed them to pull together the first truly polyglot empire. And the way they did it is by extending religious toleration so long as they didn't rock the boat with regard to their um, religious tradition. Remember that religion is then and is now, whether we like to believe it or not, one of the elements that people take as indicative of the legitimacy of a regime. So uh, my argument is something like this. Religion uh, does divide, but it also unites. Uh, remember, it's drawn from the Latin term religio, to bind together, has the same root as the word for uh, ligature. Okay, um, religion unifies things like the Roman Empire, the Indian subcontinent, uh, the Islamic Ummah, stretching from uh, Indonesia to Morocco. Um, it, offer, 
it, it works, in, it performs a very important function of social and normative integration. It's not an accident that you see it everywhere. And even more, it works in tandem with political structures. Here's my best understanding from my read of world history. In societies that have very strong centralized political authority, they necessarily, of course, have a corresponding religious uh, uh, tradition, which reinforces and legitimizes that central authority. But as long as that central authority is very powerful and is not in danger from, uh, of being overthrown, such authority understandably becomes kind of relaxed and tolerant and pretty chill about various other religious traditions. So, for example, considering the Romans, uh, you look at their empire, um, all kinds of stuff existed in there besides the Roman pantheon. You know, you had Isis and Mithras and, you know, the whole collection of stuff that got developed in, within the context of the Mediterranean basin. And the Romans didn't much care because it wasn't a threat to Rome. The same thing happens in, actually in the history of China. China unifies very early. I mean, it's a brilliant political culture that makes the brilliant decision to unify us. You know, unfortunately, it's under a, a homicidal, uh, uh, terrifying individual, Qin Shi Huang Ti. But once China unifies, they are well organized and they rarely um, uh, are in danger of separatism. I mean, uh, the imperial system works very well. It is very, very centripetal. It's the opposite of a centrifuge. Everything flows back to the center. And what that means is, like the case of the Roman Empire, that means that the Chinese government could be relatively tolerant and relaxed and chill about various different ideas uh, that, that depart from the legalism of Qin Shi Wang Ti or from the Confucianism of the Mandarin class, right? So, for example, Taoism and the mysticism associated with it um, isn't a danger, so they didn't have to persecute it. There's no point in it. Same sort of thing when Buddhism gets chased out of India, uh, the Buddhist missionaries find fertile soil in China, and there's a long and very impressive Buddhist tradition in China and in Japan as well, but um, there was no need to destroy Buddhism felt by the Chinese imperial authorities because, well, they're in the driver's seat. They're not really in any kind of danger. So Buddhism, so long as it doesn't rock the boat, they're welcome to join the party. Now look how different that is to, say, places that don't have very powerful unified political authorities. Um, there, the fragmentation of authority means that much of the uh, social and political integration and which means a normative integration that holds a society together and keeps it from destroying itself, that's going to be taken up um, in the absence of centralized political authority by religion. So that's what happens, for example, when you look at the largely fragmented history of the Indian subcontinent, right? Yes, there are some noteworthy large empires, particularly in northern India, but on the whole, 
political decentralization has been much more important in India than it has been in China. And I think this is the reason why the, uh, the advocates of Hinduism saw Buddhism as a threat and put Buddhism down and chased it out of the, of the uh, portion of the world where it originated. So it's the fragmentation of politics in subcontinental India that makes the Hindu religious tradition so strong. It stepped in to, f to fill a vacuum. The same sort of thing happened in Europe. In Europe, we have not one uh, unified empire. We have lots of different nation states that emerged from the various tribes that busted up and then divided the, uh, Roman, the, the late Roman Empire. Well, because we have decentralization in European politics, the church becomes extraordinarily hypertrophied and it will tolerate absolutely no deviation. There are persecutions of Jews, there are persecution of Muslims, there are the persecution of heretics. Uh, the church runs a very exclusive outfit, at least in part because it's necessary for them not to split up uh, religious influence because they are performing an absolutely essential function like the a Brahmin class in, in India. They are adding a unity, a coherence to a culture that doesn't have political unity. So here's my, general, my generalization. For the most part, places that have high degrees of political centralization and unchallenged authority, or authorities meet lesser challenges, they tend to be very tolerant with regard to a variety of religions and belief systems. The reason why is that there's no, there's no advantage in persecuting them. Right? This is, the government is in pretty good shape. On the other hand, in places where you don't have unified political authority and political authority is being contested, there, in order to uh, create some coherence and uh, impose some order on the chaos of uh, the political vacuum or the, the elements of political vacuum, what religion does and its, uh, its uh, avatar, its you know, uh, adherence, they step into the breach and they take over functions of social integration which are absolutely essential and particularly uh, uh, fragile and brittle in the case of places that don't have political unity. This is a second question from the archive, and he says, how does a man with a conscience work his way through a world ready to devour everything wholly? Well, uh, I don't know. If I ever get there, I'll be sure and inform you. Uh, the world is not as as extreme as your question suggests. Uh, what else did he say there? Um, he's been a jack of all trades. He's had a lot of different careers, and he says that evil rules them all. Okay, yeah, evil rules them all. Well, I'm 
mean, it's a very interesting list of things you've done. You're a black belt and an actor, a musician, all this great, and it's all very impressive. And you know, you've had a very kaleidoscopic career. Um, I was wondering, have you ever given birth? Um, that doesn't seem to be in the list. Now here's the deal, okay? Understandably, reason, uh, evil rules everything and everybody in the world. Now the population of the planet is something like eight billion people, roughly speaking, and uh, that would be eight billion examples of mothers deciding not to kill their infants. Now that's a very f- peculiar fact about a world that's ruled by evil, and it seems to me that you're having the same problem as Hobbes. You're overstating the violence and depravity of people, not because it doesn't deserve very serious and very uh, carefully focused attention. But although what you're saying is true about the world, it's only true about part of the world, and they're even they're only partially true. So it's the truth, okay, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that people are both social and antisocial. And if you think that uh, evil rules the world, what pops into my head immediately is eight billion counterexamples. Now that's something you're going to have to take into account because you know it's not that's not a one-off. Um, the fact that evil exists doesn't mean that evil rules. And uh, you say that everything is cruelty and violence and exploitation, but that's just not true. That can happen, but uh, we are partially in control of whether that happens or not. And if it happens to us as children, we still are going to have to make a decision as adults whether we're going to continue that on or whether we're going to decide that this is going to stop here. So, uh, the holy has not been extinguished, but it is always rare, and it's always kind of a flickering flame. Um, The best thing that I can tell you about uh, having a conscience is that uh, it's an absolutely essential thing, but by itself it's not sufficient. Um, there's a wonderful line from Pascal's Pensees, which sounds to me like you would do, might help you with a read. Um, he says, we never do evil so fully or so cheerfully as when we do it out of conscience. <laughs> and that's true. Uh, sometimes conscientious people can do atrocious things. So uh, it's not that I am suggesting that we dispense with conscience, but rather that we be in some ways circumspect about the uh, universal significance of our particular judgments about right and wrong. Sometimes we'll have justification in emphasizing our judgments and their uh, applicability more than others. In other words, what I want to suggest to you is that you might be uh, a little more comfortable with right and wrong and with the existence of the sacred and the holy and it's the persistence of uh, virtue, if you were to go back and look at Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, develop phrenesis, which which is uh, translated out of Greek as something like good judgment, prudence. And if you uh, develop prudence and good judgment, 
you'll have a better idea of how to deploy your conscience, how to fight battles you can win, uh, pick your, your shots, and uh, find a way of leaving more toward the human community than you took when you get to the end of your life. This next question is from Hundi, and he asks, can you recommend any other esoteric mystics? Uh, yeah. Uh, he means depends it. on how your uh, inclinations run. <coughs> he says that the he, first, he likes Meister Eckhart. Well, I don't blame you for liking Meister Eckhart. He's uh, fascinating and poetic and kind of spooky. Uh, I like Chuang Tzu, the Chinese uh, Taoist. I've always found him interesting and kind of funny. Uh, a good introduction might be Thomas Merton's book, The Way of Chuang Tzu. Uh, Thomas Merton, the, cath the Catholic monk, uh, felt a certain sort of resonance with Chuang Tzu and uh, his uh, book of Chuang Tzu's uh, parables is wonderful. Uh, the parable of the cook and the emperor is one of my favorites. Um, what other mystics do I like? Uh, well, you know, there's a whole collection in the Catholic tradition. There are a whole bunch of them. And, uh, you know, they're just century after century of it. Um, who would I, who would I choose? I guess that I'd be inclined to say that, uh, when you go back to someone like uh, Proclus or uh, uh, Dionysus the Areopagite uh, or uh, any of the early fathers who tended to veer off into mysticism, uh, it's not that mysticism uh, is worthless. It's that it's an attempt to fill the gap left by the limitations of language itself. All right? We have things to say that we can't formulate in language. And uh, mysticism gives us a kind of metaphor grammar rather than a literal grammar. And uh, that's the thing that I, I found most useful about it. Uh, Trang Su, uh, he's got a, a wry sense of humor. And like most mystics, he withdraws from the world of uh, human beings and their activities. Uh, the uh, Sufi mystic Rumi in Islam, also a lovely writer. Powerful and uh, shocking epigrams sometimes. So I think he's well worth reading as well. Um, who else? Uh, I guess that that would be my, my, my starting point. Uh, I would look outside the Christian tradition and see what unifies mystics. And here is at least part of it. <clears throat> In every tradition, mysticism, mystics are implicitly or explicitly claiming that they have some direct hotline to the ultimate reality, to God or heaven or whatever the ultimate thing is. Uh, in Plato's case, the form of the good. And not only do they have a special access to it, but that that means that the current religious authorities outside of this direct hotline to God are now rendered more or less superfluous. So every time mystics with, become popular and develop a following, 
they're always a danger to the politic to the religious authorities that every great world religion uh, civilization has to have, which means that mystics get themselves in trouble. Sometimes they reach a rapprochement with the powers that be. Sometimes they don't. But mysticism is always politically dangerous if it becomes very popular. 